Pittsburgh Steelers fans, welcome to this week's episode of Steelers War Room. I'm your host of this weekly show, Matt Peverell, the show that looks to put you in the minds of Mike Tomlin, Kevin Colbert, Omar Khan, the Steelers organization, as they put together a roster that's going to win a seventh Lombardi trophy. Look, it's been a massive week for the Pittsburgh Steelers. We've lost David DeCastro. We've brought in Trey Turner. We've got crazy rumors about Kevin Dotson, which I don't believe. You've heard about all of them across BTSC's network of shows, across our morning audio shows, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Let's Rides with, you know, Jeff Hartman, senior editor, Live Mike with Michael Beck on, a, on the Tuesdays, Dave Schofield, Stat Geek on the Thursdays. You've got the, the what we call kind of the lunchtime shows at the moment in this show, War Room and Fact or Fiction. And then you've got obviously the YouTube shows as well, the shows as well that obviously run across our podcast network. In terms of, you've got the Steelers preview on a Thursday evening. On Friday, you've got Six Pack Returning. On Saturday, you've got Touchdown Under. On Sunday, you've got uh, 2 a.m. Talking 2 a.m. You've got Steelers Hangover. Then you go Scobro Show. Then you've got the Curtain Call with Michael Beck and Jeffrey Benedict. So, you know what? We will sort of talk about the implications of David DeCastro's, uh, you know, departure from the Pittsburgh Steelers, but we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show with a nod to the future. I want to kick off this week's show talking about where one of the areas that I talked about last week, which was around those restructuring of contracts, around teams that restructure contracts. So to recap, as we talked about last week, this comes from over the caps sort of research from, from one of their writers, Jason Fitzgerald, who runs their site. And basically what we learned was that 15, for teams that restructured up to 15 million in a given season, about 53% improved year over year. 40% of those teams finished with at least 10 wins in the year they restructured. Compared that with teams that didn't restructure at all, where only 40% improved, 31% had 10 wins and those that did a massive restructure, so that's almost up towards 100 plus million, they only 33% improved, 31% achieved, you know, 10 wins. The other thing that we found out too was that teams that finished with 10 wins in the prior, um, 10 wins in the prior year um, had to really make quite a bit of an effort to do that. And those that moved a ton of money to try and repeat that only saw a 32% return to 10 wins. But what I parked on last week was the long-term ramifications. So what are the long-term ramifications of restructures? Well, Jason put this together and basically looked at, if you look at those different restructure max levels of zero, six and a half million, 15 million, and 110 million, the team and where the teams had 10 wins in the two years after their restructure. So if the teams that restructured zero dollars, they 31.9% of those teams had 10 plus wins two years after that restructure. For teams that restructured six and a half million, 38.2% of those had 10 wins two years after. For those that restructured 15 million, 30.3% had 10 wins two years after. And for those that restructured up to up to 110 million, 38.2% had 10 plus wins two years after. Now, obviously, a lot goes into how a roster is created beyond, you know, a few, you know, restructuring cap moves purely that, you know, obviously you've got drafts and you have other free agents and, and what have you. But basically, 
the key point about this is that long-term prospects of a team were not harmed in one year because of contracts going crazy. And remember, what I talked about last week is that these numbers sort of married or the result married to a degree the role of dead money on a cap and how, you know, a bit of dead money is fine, but too much is detrimental and not any at all, you know, we'll not really see a team improve. But what Jason did is he went a bit further and he basically looked at restructure patterns in a two-year period. So basically he did that for all the, the nerds out there, the range totals of year N and then N plus one and looked at how the teams performed in those two years. And here's the data that he got. So basically for the max two-year range total of restructuring, $0. Teams that restructured $0, that first year, 26.7% had 10 wins. One year after that first re- that those restructures, 25% had 10 wins. 26.7% had 10 plus wins in the second year after that restructure. And 11.7% had back-to-back 10 win seasons. For those that restructured $6.5 million, 36.4% had 10 plus wins. 31.8% had 10 plus wins in that first year after that restructure. So it's kind of the like two seasons on. 47.7% had 10 plus wins in that year two restructure. And 22.7% had back to back 10 win seasons. For those that restructured $30 million, there were 33.3% had 10 plus wins. In the, those that restructured that 30 million after that one year on from that restructure, 40.4% had 10 plus wins. And then only 29.8% had 10 plus wins in that second year of that after that restructure, with 22.8% having back to back 10 win seasons. Of teams that restructured up toward 200 million, so that's the 100 million mark or so a year. 42.9% had 10 plus wins in that year of the restructures. One year on from the restructures, 36.5% had 10 plus wins. And two years on, teams that had 10 plus wins were 36.5%. And 14% of those that restructured upwards to a 200 million, so that 100 million mark of those two years, was only 14.3% that had back to back 10 win seasons. So Basically, the second group saw the most improvement. Basically, the main mover here was that the zero dollar, those that restructured zero dollars in year one, followed by minor restructures in year two, while the third group saw a bump and then a fall. The teams that drove more of the fall were those who were more aggressive two years in a row. The final group didn't see much repeat success, but did not collapse either. Basically, Jason concluded that sometimes people make too much out of a restructure, just kind of like they do dead money. But as long as the team doesn't make too many mistakes, they can overcome and work around restructures. There's also very little evidence, that, and this is some research that goes toward this, that massively restructuring an entire roster to add players doesn't actually work. If teams are doing it for cap compliance, they should be look at other ways outside of restructures before pushing more chips, um, before pushing more the chips around, simply for short-term benefits, because eventually, you know, you an eventual purge of the roster will happen and this is just going to make that harder but equally teams will need to fiddle with contracts from time to time and basically there's a sweet spot if you limit yourself to no more than 15 to 20 million in restructures over a two-year period this is why i wanted to bring it up because with pittsburgh Steelers are one of these teams and in fact and we do it quite often in, in a lot of years we do these we do restructures and now we started using voidable years 
But the interesting thing is in 2021, there's actually 17 teams that have restructured more than 15 million. The Steelers are one, but so are the Saints, Rams, Chiefs, Texans, Eagles, Packers, Ravens, Bears, Falcons, Lions, Browns, Cowboys, Bills, Titans, Panthers, and Cardinals. The Giants are getting pretty close. The prior high, if you go back over, over the last few years in terms of um, this restructure, is actually 11 teams. And in most seasons, the number is actually about six to eight. So you've had double that. Now, obviously, we've got the situation with salary cap reduction down to 182.5 uh, million. Teams that haven't touched a contract in, re- in terms of restructures yet are the Chargers, Colts, Jets, Patriots, Bucks, Jaguars, and Seahawks. Now, a lot of those teams are pretty healthy in cap or were before free agency. The teams in between are the Raiders, Vikings, 49ers, Broncos, Bengals, and the Washington football team. Given the really odd spread, Jason sort of guessed that more teams than usual will make it from the high restructure group, but a number of those teams probably put themselves in a worse situation by tinkering with so many contracts this year. We knew the Steelers had to tinker with contracts. I don't think we're one of those teams because we were able to do things like still keep Juju Smith-Schuster. We were able to bring back Vince Williams. We were able to create cap to bring different people in. And, hey, if we do go get a Brian Paul in the next few weeks or we do go get a Richard Sherman um, in the next few weeks, we do go get a Justin Houston or a Melbourne Ingram, that would be really favourable because right now we don't have a lot of depth in those positions and we wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't make certain restructures of contracts. So the next thing I wanted to touch on was there's a really interesting, I don't know, I find interesting, but obviously it's pretty clear that I'm a bit of a, you know, cap and roster formation, you know, nerd or geek, but I love to geek out with it. It's why I love Dave's stat geek too from a stat perspective. But there's a little interesting thing on over the cap called contract triggers. And right now there's no Pittsburgh Steelers contract trigger for a while, but there is one coming up in February next year. You go, not so what? Well, Basically, there's four key triggers coming up between now and February 2023, and I wanted to bring them up because there's one that I specifically want to talk to, and that is the fact that in Juju's voidable contract or voidable year will happen on February 10th. Cameron Haywood's owed a $4.5 million roster bonus on March 20 next year. On March 21, Joe Haig is owed a half a million dollar bonus, and Cameron Sutton's contract void comes up on February 10th, 2023. So why am I telling you this? None of this sounds like it really matters. What I think matters is actually Joe Haig's contract, the roster bonus of $500,000. I can't see the Pittsburgh Steelers keeping him until then. In fact, I said a few weeks ago on Steelers Touchdown Under that I felt that Joe Haig wouldn't actually make the roster. I felt that he was a Stefan Wisniewski-style character that won't actually make it. Even with the DeCastro industry, an injury, I still see that being the case. I still see that Trey Turner is very much likely, obviously, to take over from DeCastro. And I still think there's guys that are going to be cut from other teams as part of roster cut downs to get right for the season that are going to be more applicable to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Something inside me says that Joe Hague is not going to be a Pittsburgh Steeler. If he is, I obviously wish him all the best. You know, we want every player to perform. But yeah, there's just something in the back of my mind. And when I saw this trigger, it brought it up for me, particularly when you think that 25% or 20, 20, yeah, a value of 25%, but what would be 20% of his uh, salary in 2022, you know, you know, is actually coming up and cutting him before then, you know, and doing everything to comply with that would be really important. But equally, 
does it make sense for him to be a long-term Pittsburgh Steeler when you've got a guy like, you know, or at least in that second year, when you've got a guy like Trey Turner only on $3 million? I think Joe Hague's prices have been inflated just personally. But as I say, I hope all the best for him in his career, and if it is with the Steelers, that he plays his guts out. Now, look, the next thing, I might take a break here. We're taking a break a little bit early, but in part two, I'm really going to talk to an interesting piece around AV and our draft pick. So that AV being that approximation valuation, because we introduced, or I've talked to it for a long time, but we talked a lot about it a couple of weeks, a couple of shows ago. And there's some interesting data that I came across when I was, when I was doing a bit, of, a bit of my own background sort of research this week. And I think it sort of puts in perspective how well we've been able to do out of the draft over the last couple of years. But with that, we'll take a break on Steel's War. Back on Steel's War Room. I'm Matt Peverell, your host of this weekly show that puts you in the minds of Mike Tomlin, Kevin Colbert, Omar Khan. The show that we look at all the different things that sort of attribute to the Pittsburgh Steelers taking and winning that seventh Lombardi trophy, which hasn't happened yet, but we want to build to it. We want to do that through the draft. You know, we want to do that through bringing in key free agents, through extending and re-signing guys from looking at the rest of the league, you know, and picking the best practices, but staying uniquely Pittsburgh Steelers. So I teased before the break that I'd done, I'd come across something with some interesting research that I wanted to talk through. And that was the, basically there was some numbers put together on the average yearly approximate valuation by position between 2012 and 2019 of first round draft picks. So as we know, approximate valuation is a metric that pro football reference assign to players given their performance in any given year. So if you've got a Super Bowl quarterback, they're going to be somewhere between like, 17 and 22 in a given year you know if you've got um you know and when the numbers start to make more sense when we go through those those still draft picks over the last three to four years but basically you know it's it's a metric that sort of balances the performance over a given year and it and acknowledges you know someone might have you know a low number of tackles for a loss and a high sack number someone might have you know, tens and ten, like, or 20 tackles for loss or 15 tackles for loss and only one sack, but it starts to sort of even that out. Now, the numbers, I think they're really important. And why I wanted to go through this is because when you go through the last four, three or four years, the Steelers draft picks have actually provided and done really well when benchmarked against this average yearly AV by position for first round draft picks, for first round draft picks. So if we look at the Pittsburgh Steelers, roster and we look at the draft picks that they've had over the last few years chase claypool here's a career av already of seven of seven the average for a wide receiver first round draft pick the average yearly av by position this is based on a minimum of four years av or a maximum of four years av is 5.979 so Chase Claypool right now is a whole point ahead of what a first-round draft pick, first-round draft pick would hope for as their AV in a given year. And it was his rookie year. And that's the thing that thing to keep in mind as they go through all of these is that 
rookie year makes it harder. The further you get away from that rookie year, the further you improve, the further playing time you get, the more opportunities you get to pad your stats and make a difference, really. So that's Chase Claypool. But what about a few of the other players that basically we can look at from the Pittsburgh Steelers in terms of their draft? Well, last year, the other two guys that I want to look at, and by last year, I mean those two draft classes, Alex Highsmith and Kevin Dotson, because the other guys were Anthony McFarlane, Antoine Brooks Jr. and Carlos Davis, who all had an AV of one or below. But Alex Highsmith had an AV of four. The average AV for a first-round draft pick over the last, over the seven years prior of draft picks was 5.898. Now, we know with Alex Highsmith, that he didn't start every game. We know with Alex Highsmith that he came in pretty late in the season. Equally, Alex Highsmith was a third-round draft pick, but he's only, you know, he's most of the way there. He's in plus 65% of the way there in terms of outside linebacker. And I think when we look at back at him after this season or even after the next season, you're going to see his numbers hopefully be in a case where he will be around that you know, 15 to 17 mark. And therefore he will be ahead of what those, that yearly average would be for a first round draft pick. Equally, Kevin Dotson, I think, you know, there's been obviously a lot of talk about him in the last week. He's another player that three or four years time, I think you'll be able to look back on and he'll be doing pretty sturdy toward this. And Kevin Dotson was a fourth round draft pick. But where it starts to really come into play is the previous couple of years. Let's look at a guy like Devin Bush, who is a first-round draft pick, who is a linebacker, who does you know attribute to these stats. He's a twenty. He was the tenth pick in the twenty nineteen draft. He's got a career AB right now, and remember, he missed a lot of his second year. He missed like ten games. Right now, for a first-round draft pick, the average yearly AV is five point eight five. He's on twelve, so he's already point three, if you like ahead of what other first-round draft picks are able to achieve, achieve as the yearly average, and he didn't even play 11 game, 10 to 11 games last year. That's massive, and that's something to really consider because after this year, he's going to skyrocket up there. It'll be interesting you know, to go back and compare him and, and Devin White in terms of how they're going, but it just shows you how important that pick was, and it shows you the impact that that pick has had. I then look at a guy like Deontay Johnson, who was a third-round draft pick out of Toledo. He was a Toledo Rocket, and he was picked at number 66. He has a career AV of 13, which is actually higher than Bush, and obviously he's been, you know, fitter for longer and, you know, made a you know massive impact in, in 2019 when, you know, Mason Rudolph and Dark Hodges were throwing to him as well before a really great year in 2020. But Deontay Johnson... That 13 number is pretty cool because wide receivers for first-round draft picks, it's 5.979. Now, he's played two years, and he's ahead of this number. That's the thing. He's played in 2019. He's played in 2020. He's got the career AV of 13. The career AV for a first-round wide receiver is 5.979. You times that by two, you're looking at more like, let's call it 12 to be flat. So technically, Deontay Johnson is the is ahead of where some first round first round wide receivers are from their yearly average. That shows you what an impact he's made. 
The next person I'm going to talk about, because everyone else in that rookie draft class of 2019 is a zero or a two. So that's really starts to skew the results out. But he's Benny Snell. And Benny Snell, he has a career AV of six to date. Now, running backs, you know, particularly, and we're talking about the first round ones, they've averaged 5.922. Now, that's where they're going to obviously go into a team and be either the bell cow or they're going to get at least 50% of the carries and make a massive difference. Benny Snell's not that guy. But equally, Benny Snell is not crazily far behind. And in fact, if Benny Snell can just get it right and if we can open up holes, I do think he might offer something. And I think if those things were to happen, I think it'd be very interesting to go back and look at these numbers in two seasons' time and sort of say, well, look, where does he sort of sit on this fence? And if he can get even 80% toward this target of that 5.99 as an AV, I think that would be an awesome result for Benny Snell Jr., but let's dial it back a couple of notches again in the previous, the previous two drafts before that. And that's around Terrell Edmonds. Let's begin with Terrell Edmonds. Terrell Edmonds is a first-round safety, right? We, we know that. Terrell Edmonds has a career AV today of 16. Do you know the career AV for a safety, for a first-round draft pick safety? It's 5.77. What does that translate to? That's 17.1. Terrell Edmonds, despite all the flack that he cops, is pretty on par, pretty on par. Particularly, you've got to think of as well, he plays strong safety. So, you know, the stats are a bit different there. Terrell Edmonds is on par with what's expected of a first-round safety based on seven years of draft pick data. Now, obviously, again, like Bush, he's part of that number. But at the same time, for people that think he's terrible, he's not. He's on par with, with that first-round draft pick, Mark. And I think when I saw this, when I was preparing for the show, it's one of the few times in the last couple of years that I'm able to sit there and go, I can agree with Jeffrey Bending. He is super valuable to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And you know what? Whilst he didn't get his fifth-year option, he should get a three- or four-year deal. He should be as part of, part of the team there, and we should just lock that up if we can, if it's, you know, not super team-friendly like a better minimum, but, you know, it's fairly team-friendly. The next guy is James Washington. So, obviously, he's been in the league for three seasons, and his career AV today is 10. So, he's a little bit further away than Deontay Johnson is, you know, from that average benchmark of a first-round wide receiver. It's an interesting thing for him too, because he was picked number 60 in the second, you know, the second round of the draft. So you'd think he'd be a bit closer. But equally, we know the adjustment issues that James Washington um, has had at times with some of the quarterbacks. And equally, we know that he's sort of that odd man out when you've got Juju, Deontay, and you had Claypool last year. However, from that draft class in 2018, the other person I want to look at, look, look at is Chooks because everyone else was sort of seven or below. And that sort of over three seasons starts to become skewed. But Chooks has got a three. And when we look at the tackles, and we're talking like the offensive, the first-round draft pick. So most of those guys are starting. They're day-one starters. If, if you're, you know, a offensive lineman and you're picked in that, in that first round, you're generally going to be starting. And if you're not starting the first game, you'll be pretty soon. Tackles, it was 5.983. So what he's achieved in a career a career AV over three seasons, those first-round draft picks achieved. However, we really know that Chooks has only had last year as his first full season starting, and I'm interested to see how this develops in that sort of fourth year that he's coming up to. And finally, I wanted to touch on the 2017 draft class as part of this because the 2017 draft class 
demonstrates how well and what this means to the Pittsburgh Steelers. So why am I talking about all of this as well? I'm talking about it because I think, whilst you might not be a fan of the AV number, at least when everyone's being assigned it, it's a fair and, and, and becomes a bit more equitable in terms of measuring, you know, how players and teams have gone. But I think what this highlights to you is that the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, in 2020, we didn't have a first-round draft pick and we got above first-round draft pick results with Chase Claypool. Again, in the other years, we've been able to get first-round draft pick level production, and that's to other teams, but we've been able to get it from, you know, third, you know, round picks and fourth round picks, and I think that's where it starts to become really important because the Pittsburgh Steelers' success can be tied to making these sorts of um, or achieving these outcomes, you know, from not necessarily having to invest massive capital at the start or being able to get value, value out of the draft from where they're picking. Well, let's look at TJ Watt. So the average AV for a first-round draft pick at the outside linebacker position is 5.898. So let's, let's round that up to six. TJ Watt's career AV after four seasons, 46. 46. He's almost double that career AV amount for someone assuming that, that, fourth, that someone's achieved that yearly average and they've had a four-year average, at, uh, had four years at that average. TJ Watt, as Mike Tom White said, is a complete alien when it comes to this sort of stuff, but it shows you the value of that pick. Equally, Juju Smith-Schuster, who's who's got an AV of 29 in the league after four seasons. The AV of a wide receiver, a first-round wide receiver, is 5.979. Let's call it six. That's 24. So technically, technically, Juju Smith-Schuster is playing has played at a career level above a first round draft pick, and we know he had that great year. That, you know, in the, um, when when Antonio Brown was around, we know he had a tough 2019. We know in 2020 he he rebounded a bit and was a go to for Ben. But that just shows you the impact that someone like him has, and that's why I do think we need to look at how we can re-sign him and keep him part of this Pittsburgh Steelers team because he's only played four years, and I think if he can arc, you know, carve out a ten plus year career with the Pittsburgh Steelers, some fans might look at him like they like we do a Heinz Ward. You know, I think he is going to be very much the spirit of the team if he stays in, and let's just hope he keeps the TikTok stuff under you know pretty tight wraps, but. At the same time, he's a character and he's proving it through his performance. The final guy that I want to talk about, and then we'll wrap up this segment, is James Connor. I know he's not with the ro- on the roster anymore, but he has a career AV, of, career AV of 19. For a guy that's not been available, you know, nearly enough, for a guy that wasn't the lead you know, running back when he joined the Pittsburgh Steelers, that 19 is actually pretty good because running backs that are first-round draft picks have five uh, you know, their average AV per year is 5.922, or if you want to call it six. Now, six over four is obviously going to be 24, but, and James Conner's at 19, but he's not a first-round draft pick. He was a third-round draft pick. He was picked at 105, and that's the difference is that, you know, and, and in a Tomlin system where he wasn't the bell cow, you know, all the time because, you know, there was Le'Veon Bell ahead of him. So, when you look at this, you see the value that Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Steelers are getting out of their top picks. Look, it is in some ways you'd love to see a lower round pick, 
you know, be doing super well in terms of that career AV. But you draft guys high because they're expected to put out a certain performance. And actually, when you go back and look at this, whether it's a Deontay Johnson surprising people, whether it's a Terrell Edmonds surprising people, if it's a Juju Smith-Schuster, even, you know, his numbers might surprise some people. Alex Highsmith, the same thing. These guys are doing really well. And this is sort of, you know, this is a testament to that fact. And then finally, to wrap up this week's show, we obviously lost and said goodbye to David DeCastro last week. No, he did not pass, of course, but we said goodbye to him from as, you know, as a Pittsburgh Steeler fans, you know, in terms of, or it might be au revoir, but, you know, you know, his playing time in the Pittsburgh Steelers is now very likely coming to an end of potentially his career. But that leaves a big hole on the Steelers' offensive line. So I thought, you know what, let's take an all-too-early look at 2022 prospects at the offensive guard position. So there's a few, and it's pretty interesting. If we look at the top guards, according to Pro Football Network, that are going to be available in the draft. You've got guys like Kenyon Green out of Texas A&M, the guy that played alongside Dan Moore Jr. You know, he was a five-star recruit out of high school. Um, you know, he can play guard and at tackle. He's probably going to play tackle this season. They're saying with Dan Moore Jr. leaving. You've got Ikeema Conwu from NC State. We know he's sort of held the line there for Sam Howell and, you know, guys like Javante Williams and uh, Damian Brown, who got drafted, you know, this year as well. He's going to be one of the top guards in the 22 draft class. He's got the size and length to play tackle too, so he's versatile. He excels inside, and he's got a real mauler mentality. He's someone that I'm really keen for the Pittsburgh Steelers to potentially draft in, you know, in that first round next year. Especially, and this is why I want to talk about it too, even with DeCastro not, if DeCastro wasn't going, we need to get younger at the offensive line. I think next year will be Ben's last year, not this year. I think he won't necessarily have the tools at his disposal and he'll want to come back. I equally think he'll probably feel the team's in a better shape, particularly with the salary cap next year, and he'll want to take advantage of that. So I definitely see more 2023 being that year. And that's why I do think we could go down the drafting of a, you know, offensive guard, probably, if not tackle in that first round, purely because I think you need to keep Ben upright in his last year, of course. And then you need to have an O-line that starts got a bit of experience in time for a really red-hot rookie quarterback to come in in 2024 and then lead the team. Sorry, the 2022, and then, um, you know, 2022, 2023, and leave the team. Ed Ingram out of LSU is another guy to consider. So is Zion Johnson out of Boston College. So is Paul Grattan out of UCLA. So is Emil Eichel from Alabama, Cade Mays from Tennessee, Lectus Smith from Virginia Tech, Marquise Hayes from Oklahoma, Josh Shills from Oklahoma State, Caden Madden from Marshall, Jason Hines from LSU, Caden Lyles from Wisconsin. Equally, there's some centers, and I don't think the Steelers are going to be in these guys because I think really we're in the situation of focusing on Kevin Green being our center. But Ty Lindbaum from Iowa, Alex Lindstrom from Boston College, Jarrett Patterson from Notre Dame, they're all guys that are going to be sort of talked about to a degree when we talk about interior offensive linemen. So is Ben Brown from Ole Miss, Colin Newell from Iowa State. But when we look at it, there's also guys like Evan Neal who play tackle that could play guard. And he's who I, a guy that I think is probably the, one of the best in the, in the business. And he's one of the best that's going to be coming through. You know, Kenyon Green will take top mantle as a, as a pretty high pick there. 
you know, and definitely going to be a first rounder for both of those gentlemen. I equally, uh, you know, there's a few other guys, Rashid Walker out of Penn State, you know, at the tackle position might see himself able to to garner a uh, a first round, you know, or an early round draft pick. And I think Zion Nelson as well from the Miami Hurricanes. But yeah, I mean, we've gone through a lot of those names. A few others that I think could be add to, added to that list is Luke Matthews out of Texas A&M, James MP out of BYU, Mike Nowitzki out of uh, Buffalo, Bayer Hunter out of Appalachian State. More at the tackle position, you've also got Jeremy Slayer, Georgia, Jordan McFadden, Clemson, Jack Snyder, San Jose State, uh, Wanya Morris, Tennessee, Rashid Walker, we talked about this before, Dylan Parham, Memphis, Darian Kinnard, Kentucky, I think he's another player that could be a you know interesting pick. Thayer Munford from Ohio State, Zion Nelson, Kenyon Green, who we talked about. So, again, there starts to become these common names, and I think they're things to stay across because these are the sorts of guys that the Pittsburgh Steelers could be considering to really shore up that line from now into the future. But with that, that wraps up Steelers' war room for this week. I'm your host, Matt Peverell. Thank you for listening. Look forward to joining you next week.